Hello and welcome to another episode of Strategic Alternatives, the RBC M&A podcast. I'm Vito Sperduto, Global Head of Mergers and Acquisitions at RBC Capital Markets. And as always, I'm joined by Larry Grafstein, Deputy Chair of Global Investment Banking. Hi, Larry. Great to be here, Vito. Today, Larry and I are joined by John Coles, Global Co-Head of Equity Capital Markets here at RBC. John has over 25 years of investment banking experience, including in various positions across the ECM landscape. He holds an MBA from the Kellogg School at Northwestern and a Bachelor of Science in Nuclear and Power Engineering from the University of Cincinnati. And that sounds pretty impressive, John. But what I'm really impressed with is the fact that right now in pop culture, you are the third most popular Bearcat alumni right after the two Kelsey brothers. So congratulations, John, and welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Vito. And and I am very often mentioned in the same sentences as the Kelsey brothers and Taylor Swift, of course, too. So I, I appreciate that intro. John, given your tenure in investment banking, especially the work you've done across various portions of equity capital markets, talk a little bit about your background and how you're bringing that expertise to bear with our clients today, especially given the turbulent times that we're in. You're right. 25 years, actually 26 now in equity capital markets does provide some perspective. And I do think that that perspective is more necessary than ever, both in terms of what has been useful in the past in overcoming, whether it's macroeconomic, geopolitical, pure supply demand, which we'll get into, what's been useful in the past, and frankly, what is no longer useful and what needs to be changed as we think about the marketplace. So I, I do I do draw on that experience every day. One of the things I joke to my own team about my first IPO that I ever worked on was the eBay IPO in September of 1998. And it seems like an eternity ago already, but that was coming out of a very long drought in the capital markets post the Russian liquidity crisis. And there's always a cross current that we have to deal with. And I think that perspective that we can bring is certainly useful and something that clients are asking us about every day. As we get into some of the detail, John, I always think it's helpful to kind of talk a bit about the background in terms of the the markets. We always thought that this year was going to be a sort of a flip of what we saw in 22, where we knew the first half of the year was going to be slow, similar to the second half of 22, but we were expecting more of an uptick in the second half of the year to bring it back in line with 2022 levels in terms of M&A transaction volume and the like. We certainly have seen an increase in the most recent quarter, the third quarter. It was up 36% versus last year, but it's still not up to the levels that we need it to be to get to a point where this year is going to match 22. So we've got some hope going forward, but I think when we look at the volumes, it's still trending in, at levels that are below where we would have liked it for the year. And there's a fair bit of pent-up demand. Maybe contrast that with what you've seen in the IPO and follow-on markets from an equity perspective, especially as you think about the volumes in those markets. I know we've talked about it. You've said it's up, but certainly it's off the press levels. That's exactly right, Vito. The volumes on a percentage basis, actually, you'd conclude are very healthy. IPO volumes are nearly triple what they were last year. The broad market in equity issuance is up 20% this year. Sounds like very healthy levels, but 
that is off a dramatically low, decades-long low in terms of a base. And so to put things in perspective, right now we're sitting at an IPO volume of about $17 billion. On average, in the last five or six years, that's more like 50. That's the type of 50 billion. In 21, for example, it was 137 billion. The broad market's at about 130 billion of equity issuance this year, compares to an average year of 250. So, despite being up 20%, we're still way, way below where an average year would be. And this gets to the question that probably all three of us spend the most of our time talking about, which is when will things get back to quote unquote normal and what are the catalysts to get there? There's, a, I'm sure we'll get into some of this, a lot of cross currents, whether it's supply, whether it's demand, whether it's all the macro things that we talk about, whether it's investor sentiment that is driving things positively or negatively, a lot of cross currents, but we're still, despite being up way, way off volumes that we'd like to be. And I would say, just given the incredible volume of private company activity leading up to this pause in the public markets, uh, pent-up demand levels will be will be very large. Yeah. And Vito and Larry, one of the things I know the three of us talk a lot about because it impacts both of our markets is where private equity is. And the, I think it's, Larry, you were telling me, I think 10-year plus high in terms of the amount of dry powder sitting at private equity. And in my world, private equity normally accounts for 40, maybe 50% of issuance volumes. And I guess that's a tale of two cities. Pent-up dry powder will support not only eventual IPO volumes, but certainly M&A along the way. And there's a long, long backlog of companies in private equity that are debating the right time to hit the public markets. And of course, venture capital unicorns at levels of all-time highs, companies that may not never have been public before, uh, but just the surge of private investment into those types of vehicles in the years leading up to the uh, interest rate policy of the Fed reversing you know, something that we haven't really ever seen before. When we talk to clients, and you know, one of the reasons for the title of this podcast is the fact that we're always trying to keep them fully informed and updated on the different and various strategic alternatives that they have available to themselves and compare those to the status quo. And, you know, we're often talking about their, you know, especially when we're thinking about some of our clients that have portfolios of companies, what are the opportunities from a monetization perspective? It might be an M&A alternative. It might be accessing the equity markets. And certainly, I think there's been some difficulty there. I mean, how do you think about the pipeline that is sitting there right now? Because it does feel that it's not just a large pipeline, but it's a large quality pipeline of assets. And I think everybody's trying to be precise in how they time the markets, yours and ours. But you know, certainly as we've learned over our careers, that precision is really hard. But you know, how are you counseling clients in this environment as they're preparing? The first point I'd make is to be prepared. We know windows come and go, but being prepared to hit that window, if it is a if a relatively fleeting window, is probably the best advice. That's of course easier said than done, but it's it's something that I'd say we've seen a big uptick in probably in the last quarter or so in terms of 
just real preparation towards an eventual exit as opposed to talking about it in a in a hypothetical that can come in the form of beginning to draft prospectuses or in the form of really getting your accounting house in order or all of the above in terms of the backlog though you're right there is probably a bigger pent up supply of higher quality bigger more profitable companies than there has been in a long time if you rewind a few years we all collectively told the issuing community you have to be profitable all of a sudden the days of a unprofitable fast growing company hitting the marketplace are over to vastly oversimplify and by and large that's what happened the result of that is companies that are much bigger that are in much better shape overall and that come to the market in a very different format than they would have in years past uh, for example as slow as this year has been in ipos we've had three of the six biggest market cap companies come public this year that have been in the last five or six years so we've got bigger companies we've got better capitalized companies and overall i think that is starting to provide the backdrop for a healthier market. Hey John, just just to round it out a little bit, let's talk about maybe a market that all of us are familiar with, but we are not experts in, the leverage finance market. And one of the things I always think about is like, today we've talked a fair bit about the fact that there is a strong strategic bid for assets, primarily because over the last few years, it feels that they've taken advantage of strong cash flows at their businesses to really get to some very healthy points in terms of their balance sheets. And so they're better prepared to potentially consider strategic acquisitions and the like. And it's great to have that strategic bid. But when the leverage finance market is constrained and there isn't a viable market there, I think it makes the sponsor bid in an M&A process, as an example, not as viable of an alternative. And we've had to see them do other things, which we'll talk about later. But how does that market and the strength of that market, good or bad, impact equity issuance? Do you see correlations between the two? Or how do you think about that as we are advising clients? Yeah, there's a couple ways that that finds its way into the equity capital markets. I think it's the mechanism that you just said, which is, is there a viable alternative or not? If you get to a scale with an asset right now, there's no alternative other than an IPO, to your point. Uh, if it's not going to go a strategic sale, there's really, at some size, not a private equity bid that likely works. On the other hand, the demand from the IPO investors, certainly a demand at a price that is interesting to a seller, has really not found that equilibrium yet, right? We've talked about whether it's a supply problem or demand problem or both, right? The real issue is that you have to have a clearing price to make supply meet demand. And I don't, I think that's still being debated. There's a IPO buyer viewpoint that any company that comes public has already run a dual track. We talk about this a lot, where whether that is a, it's a recommendation or not. Any IPO buyer says, especially from private equity, that they would much rather have sold the company then taking it public. So they're going to assume whether correct or not that if they're going public, that might, meant there wasn't 
an alternative to that. And so I think whether that finds its way into the IPO buyer psyche to say, I have more leverage because they have no alternative but to take it public, I know that also means for private equity in particular that it's a multiple year journey from the IPO to actually sell down. So I think there's a little bit of that that finds its way into the price negotiation as well. I don't think we'll ever have it perfect, but it's there. It's certainly there. Just to clarify, by dual track, you mean a process whereby an owner of an asset considers in parallel a possible IPO as a monetization exercise or possible sale of the whole company. Exactly. The buyer of an IPO will assume that the seller if it's private equity in particular, that the seller would have preferred to sell the whole company and has gone down that path and concluded that they're better off going to the IPO market. As we think about alternatives, you know, oftentimes we'll see that if we think there's a value from an M&A exit perspective, certainly there's a relationship between that value and where you potentially would price an IPO. Similarly, I would say I've noticed a number of clients are putting a higher discount on the future exits that they would need if they were to take a company public, because it's going to take a multiple rounds of follow-on offerings and sell-downs to actually monetize the position. It seems to me like they've increased the discount that they're considering in those situations if they're valuing it to the present to be able to compare that alternative, given the volatility in the market given the likelihood of institutional investors being there. I mean, are you seeing the same or is this just something that happens in turbulent periods and then comes back? We do see that and it's only natural. And it's another one of the many outreaches from what has changed in a different interest rate environment that we haven't seen in a very long time. That that simple, when do I get my cash return? The further out that is in a higher interest rate environment is worth less today. And Couple that with the fact that the IPOs that we have seen have been generally smaller as a percent of market cap than they had been historically. We can debate whether they had to be to get done or not, but if you're selling less of the company today, that elongates the time to when you fully exit at a higher interest rate, worse NPV. And so that absolutely factors into things. In general, I'd say historically, the data would have showed from IPO to full exit two to three years for you know, between first follow-on, second follow-on, then moving to block trades. That's probably elongated now in reality, given the starting point being smaller. And some of that has to be related to the fact that multiples are always inversely related to interest rates. And so as we all await the end of interest rate increases, there's a hope that perhaps they'll settle out, maybe moderate, which would lead to multiple expansion. But I do want to come back, John, to something you said about some of the recent deals being smaller. Let's talk about some of the high-profile deals. Traditionally, when an IPO market is shut down, then it reopens. You need some leaders. You need some positive uh, examples of that. And we've seen some very sizable companies like ARM, uh, owned by SoftBank, like Instacart, and, and a number of others, Birkenstock uh, recently, a well-known consumer brand. Tell us a little bit about how those IPOs are doing and what the effect is on the market right now. 
Yeah, Larry, you're right. There was a number of big high-profile IPOs that arguably had too much pressure on them, too much attention, and carried too much weight of, are these going to be the ones that reopen the IPO market? In general, I'd say the good news is they all got done and were completed. The less good news is they have all performed somewhere between below expectations and simply poorly in the aftermarket. The question becomes why? Were they misexecuted? Were there misjudgments in price, in tactics, in receptivity? All of the above is the is the answer. There's no single answer. But the question you asked on sizing, connecting back to where we were, it seems like an obvious tactic that if you want to, if you're a little more worried about IPO certainty and IPO execution, do a little bit smaller of a deal. Have more of that spoken for on day one versus having to go out and find new investors. That tactic sounds logical. In reality, it's likely backfired. The investor base right now wants bigger deals with more liquidity, with more of a lockdown mentality spread among high-quality, like-minded investors. And what they've got instead is a um, is a sort of a bifurcated, uh, a group of investors who are already circled at the time of launch that presumably are rock solid and will add more in the aftermarket, and then some new additions to the club who get um, you know, are told, hey, you get to join this exclusive club. What it has ended up being is that neither side got what they want, and it has produced aftermarket outcomes that have not been inspiring to reopening the IPO market. The average of all of the IPOs this year is flat, and that includes some very high profile returns of very small deals. If you did a dollar weighted average, it's dramatically negative. So if you're the buyer of IPOs, which is supposed to be an IPO class that adds alpha to your portfolio, that is priced with a discount to take the risk of going from no public liquidity to public liquidity, and it hasn't happened. So that is somewhat what I referred to at the beginning of the pod of rethinking some of these tactics and whether we need a better mousetraps to to how to get deals done appropriately. So summarizing your, you know, very keen insights on this, you know, maybe we could say that a number of the things that happened in 2023 so far were necessary to, you know, preconditions to the IPL market opening up in a healthy, robust way, but not yet sufficient. I think it also highlights that these few IPOs, whether it was Arm or Birkenstock or, or Clavio or Instacart, which are the four that are most often discussed because they were the biggest and most high profile, that those in some ways are anomalies and not the fat part of the bell curve of what we want to see in the IPO market. In any given year, tech and healthcare account for 30 to 50% of the IPO market. Tech in particular has been largely absent. And it's it's the classic 250 or $300 million IPO, not the billion-dollar IPO that has been missing. And Vito and I would say that while there's been some repair in the calendar 2023 to the M&A market, 
it hasn't really come back in a way that you see high-end multiples uh, pushing the envelope. Uh, we feel better about where things stand and what the outlook is, but there's still some headwinds to M&A as well. John and Larry, maybe let's um, let's touch upon you know some of the economic indicators and geopolitical issues that are impacting our markets. And as we think on the geopolitical front right now, what's going on in the Israeli uh, Hamas conflict is having some meaningful and lasting uh, impact to populations in the Middle East and, and across the globe. And certainly that's something we're all mindful of. Uh, and it's not just simply about how it's hitting our markets. We're sitting here when we're recording this today in mid-October, and we've got a number of issues that are impacting things. Larry and I always talk about CEO confidence and how that conveys to being able to make decisions on M&A transactions, but certainly it impacts being able to, to do equity financings as well. We always look at the conference board CEO survey, and in their most recent survey at the start of this month, it was basically flat to slightly down from last quarter, which is up versus the prior four quarters, but certainly the confidence levels are cautious. And when they're looking at it, I think there's still an expectation across the majority of CEOs that were surveyed that they expect some form of a U.S. recession, but at the same time, three quarters of them, if they do expect it, they expect it to be short and sort of get through it quickly, brief and shallow, I think is the terminologies they're using. You know, we often talk to a lot of our clients and as they're trying to make decisions, give them guidance on what we're seeing in the market and, and sort of what indicators to look towards. How are you giving counsel as, you know, clients are trying to decipher and maybe we start first with sort of some of the economic indicators and on the day we're recording today, I know Powell is about to speak and, you know, certainly inflation remains high and, you know, how the Fed deals with that. I think everybody's very curious. We lived through a time where we didn't have to worry about what the Fed chairman said for a while. We weren't parsing every word in the speech like we were 10, 15 years ago. And now we're back to parsing every word and seeing exactly what has changed. And that certainly impacts both CEO confidence and CEO psyche and boards owners, as well as investors, the probably biggest, most palpable view out there is, at least from the buy side, no investor right now feels like they're going to miss something and not have an opportunity to buy it again. It permeates to, do I have to buy this deal today? Do I have to buy this IPO today? Or can I, yeah, maybe if I miss it, I'll be able to get it back. But I'm certainly not going to miss out on an opportunity and it gets to conviction level. On the other side, back to the supply demand discussion, for the earlier part of 23, many of the CEOs that we talked to said, even if I could go public, I don't think I'm quite ready yet. I'm not sure that I've got a full handle enough on my business to be able to say, when we tell them, you better be darn sure about your first quarter out of the box, your second quarter in particular, I think some CEOs, I see some heads shaking, I see some CEOs just didn't have that yet and realized that they needed a little bit more time. And that starts from the macro. That starts from this view of what does the broad economy that impacts every one of these companies look like. We often talk about the fact that a lot of our clients feel some strength in their business 
but they're still nervous because they've been told that the market's difficult. They've been told, and they they talk about the fact that, well, my business is doing well, but you know, I know my competitors aren't doing as well, and I'm concerned about the economy. And so I do think whether that's reality or not, and they all kind of feel that way, it still creates an environment where there's a lack of confidence that allows them to be resolute in making decisions. But, you know, certainly I think they're they're looking for some signals and it's tough to point to specific issues right now. And obviously right now, a time when if you're a decision maker, you're very concerned about exogenous shocks. And of course, we all hope that these wars don't widen. Uh, they've already had terrible human consequences. But Leaving aside the unpredictable, John, you know, one of the things that is predictable is that we're heading into a presidential election year in 2024, and politics can be a very volatile time in the market. So you know, explain to us a little bit how we should think about uh, the presidential election year from the standpoint of the equity markets. Yeah, as if we didn't have enough things to contend with, we throw election year into it. And as we all know, that seems to start earlier and earlier every election cycle. The knowns, of course, of the conventions, which I believe are July and August, are there. And then, of course, the rhetoric and the polarization that's likely to crescendo even further. The data would show you something that is a little bit more optimistic. So we've gone back for the last dozen or so election years, and all but two are actually positive S&P returns. The two that weren't, you could debate, had nothing to do with the election itself, 2008 and 2000. That said, non-election years are generally better. And issuance volumes certainly take a little bit of a dip because right around the election itself, nobody wants to be the one out in the market that is contending with that. But overall, it's not as big of an impact to issuance volumes as you would expect. So I think there's a reason to be optimistic. That said, I don't think we can ever disentangle some of the issues that we talked about, whether it's macro or geopolitical or just investor sentiment or CEO confidence, how that all impacts volumes in both of our markets. Frankly, it impacts whether you can or should go public or whether you can or should sell to either a strategic or to to private equity or someone else. All those All those things will be impacted. And of course, despite the adversarial tone of presidential election years, there's clearly an incentive to try to make the economy on the part of economic policymakers as stable as possible, uh, those, those who are in charge now. The other piece I think about is after you've had periods of disruption, how long does that take in different markets to recover? We've all been through a number of those time periods historically. And if you look at, obviously, the volumes we saw in both of our markets in 21 and in the latter half of 20, uh, you know, post everybody getting comfortable with the environment, those were significant numbers relative to what we've seen in 22 and so far in 23 and where we think 23 is going to end up. It's difficult to think that you would go into a third year of that, given what we're seeing, given the quality that's sitting on the sidelines. It's such a large amount of dollars, whether you're looking at private equity funds, venture capital funds, private credit, you're looking at the institutional investors, it does feel that there's a, a demand in both directions to make something happen. And so we'll, we'll be curious to watch what the catalyst is there. That's right. That's probably the question all of us get asked the most, which is, what are the guideposts? What are the things we're looking for 
we're never going to signal an all clear, let's go, forget about everything. But what are we looking for? And I think you're right that I'm a simple person in some ways thinks that the dollars, where do they sit and what are their alternatives are the single biggest driving force. We've talked about private equity dry powder. We've talked about the relative attractiveness of the equity versus fixed income or other places for for your dollars and just the dearth of product that has been out there. I think one element as well that will be important for both of our markets is that, and we hit on this a little bit earlier, that the companies that are likely to be in both of our markets and trying to evaluate their alternatives are just bigger and better capitalized and more profitable than they were in other cycles. And I think that gets to, it's just a higher quality company. And that comes with, of course, maybe there's still a reckoning in terms of price. Maybe we haven't quite found that price equilibrium. But I do think it will, when it does reopen in earnest, we're going to have a higher quality calendar that will help ensure that the market not only reopens, but stays open and performs well. Well, you know, John, I know Larry and I have enjoyed talking about the current macro environment and some of the conditions that we're seeing impacting our clients, our mutual clients, in fact, who are considering what alternatives they have in front of them. And we look forward to talking in our next episode of the Forward Outlook. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Very much enjoyed it. Larry, thank you. Great to be here. You have been listening to Strategic Alternatives, the RBC M&A podcast. This episode was recorded on October 19th, 2023. Listen and subscribe to Strategic Alternatives on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review and share the podcast with others. Thank you. This content is based on information available at the time it was recorded and is for informational purposes only. It is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation, and no recommendations are implied. It is outside the scope of this communication to consider whether it is suitable for you and your financial objectives. For disclosures, please visit www.rbccm.com disclosure.